This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cutmore. Welcome, uh, Dave Green, to the program. How you doing, Dave? Uh, welcome to the new year, Bob. Yes, welcome to the new year. Well, this is something a little different. I mean, we, from time to time, have these chit-chat podcasts where I tell some stories that I've written for Focus on History in the Daily Gazette, and that's basically what I'm going to do. But this, Dave, is a stay-at-home, online, internet version of a Bob Cudmore history talk. Sounds complicated at this point, but tell us about it. Well, I was supposed to do a history talk at uh, the Presbyterian Church in Broad Alban for the Broad Alban Kennietto Historical Association, or I believe it's Historical Society. And I've been in touch with the uh, organizer of these talks, George Pifko, and we'd, we made these arrangements months ago. And the appointed time came, and Audrey and I ventured forth from our home in Glenville uh, to go up to uh, Broad Alban, which, interestingly to me, maybe not to the world, uh, Audrey went to school in Broad Alban. But, so she enjoys going to Broad Alban. And we're on the way to Broad Alban, and we stop and have dinner at a restaurant on uh, Route 29. It's called C&R's. And we get in. They, they take our order. Our food arrives. And we're just about ready to wrap up the, uh, the meal and then push on to Broad Alban when the power goes out. And we sat for a while, and ultimately, uh, they uh, we paid in in cash, and they they did the bill by hand, Dave. You know, adding up. That somehow always works out. Huh? It does. So we we paid the the bill, and we go outside to get in the car, and I know this is you know kind of obvious, but it was sort of a revelation to us that it was dark. I mean, it was really dark. <laughs> okay. Because we're basically out in the country without the electric lights that you have here and there, like for the restaurant, you know, it's dark. So the question comes, do we push on to Broad Alban and the Presbyterian Church? Well, I thought first I'd call home, which may seem like an odd thing to do, but I have an answering machine. And I thought, well, maybe Mr. Pifko is been aware of this situation, because by then we'd heard the rumor that this was not just a power outage where we were. It was affecting Amsterdam, Broad Alban, up one side of Sacandaga Lake, and and I never did find out what the power outage uh, was caused by. But anyway, I called my home phone, and I uh, get a message from George Pifko that, yes, there's been a power outage, and he would uh, like to cancel. And in fact, I think at some point while I was listening to that, he called me on my cell phone. So I, I talked to him and we agreed, canceled. So didn't do the talk. We turned around, went back home. Nothing better than when you're driving through a power outage, Dave, than you see a traffic light ahead of you. You mean one that's working? One that's working. Uh-huh. And uh, we, we saw that right at the intersection of Route 29 and 147. It's, and, it's how the frontiersmen felt. That's true. But I thought to myself, well, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint the good people of Broad Alban. And Audrey called one of her friends who was going to come to the talk. And she was disappointed anyway. Uh, and, and I'm hoping that, well, I'm not really hoping, but I presume there were others disappointed. So we're going to promote this podcast. If you had wanted to attend uh, Bob's talk at the Presbyterian Church for the Broad Alban Kenyatta Historical Society, well, you can just listen to it online. And if you like the talk, maybe you could send me an email, bobcudmore at yahoo.com, and uh, we'll 
uh, make arrangements so I can speak to your group. And I, I do enjoy doing that kind of thing. And uh, my email is bobcudmore at yahoo.com. And don't forget, it's still dark. It's still dark. Yeah. It's still dark. But uh, that's why I sometimes prefer to do the talks at 2 in the afternoon. No Be- doubt. Yeah, because then you might have uh, just been able to do it with uh, natural light, as they say. Yeah, Bob Cudmore and Daylight, they go together hand in hand. <laughs> they, they do. Well, what I was going to do f- for the good folks in Broad Alban was to tell them some of my recent stories. And in fact, the first story I was going to tell them it hasn't appeared, or as of the, when the talk took place, it was still in the future. It became a uh, Focus on History column on January 26th. And the headline was, Minaville Native, well-known in Alaska. One of my favorite tales about the, the Mohawk Valley and other things. You know, there, there are strange things done in the Midnight yeah, Sun. That's true. Well, anyhow. Born in the town of Florida Hamlet of Minaville. Have you ever been to Minaville, Dave, or gone through it? Yes, I have. Nice area. Yeah, it's on, it's on Route 30 south of Amsterdam. Born in the town of Florida Hamlet of Minaville in 1834 and buried at that Hamlet's Chuctanunda Cemetery in 1909, Sheldon Jackson had a major impact on Alaska. Many praise Jackson for improving conditions for Alaska's native peoples. He was called the dynamic St. Paul of America in a Daily Gazette story about his achievements back in 1934, long after he died. Elizabeth Tower wrote a sympathetic biography of the missionary in 1988. Time magazine in 2009 marked the 50th anniversary of the 49th state, that's Alaska, and placed Jackson as number two on a list of the top 10 Alaskans. The magazine praised him for, quote, setting up free public schools for Native American, Eskimo, and white children, unquote. And that's true. But in recent years, there's been more criticism of Sheldon Jackson and other of the Christian missionaries that went to places like Alaska or Hawaii and so on and so forth. Some academics and native people have criticized, for example, Jackson's English-only approach to educating native speakers. The people who lived in Alaska, and they are and are not called Eskimos still, but they're different uh, tribal names that they uh, belong to. But when Professor Um, when Sheldon Jackson came to teach them English, he demanded that they forsake their native tongue. And that's one of the points of criticism of Sheldon Jackson today. Professor Stephen Haycox of the University of Alaska says Jackson's efforts were a detriment to native tongues. In other words, uh, practically had them go out uh, out of use. I mean, similar things have been done all around the world, I, I think the the British have been faulted for uh, suppressing uh, the, the native language of Ireland uh, when they, they took over Ireland, and it has been preserved and so forth. And I think that the natives of Alaska are making efforts to preserve their language. 
Jackson also has been faulted for his dealings with Native Americans and Mormons in the lower 48 states where he had served before going up to Alaska. Well, let's go back to the story that's the story, uh, Sheldon Jackson from Minaville. He was the son of a prosperous farmer and legislator in Minaville, Samuel C. Jackson, and his mother was Delia Sheldon Jackson, from where we get his first name, and she was the daughter of the New York State Assembly Speaker, Alexander Sheldon. Uh, Sheldon Jackson's father's father, his grandfather, was also like his father, and I'm sorry, this seems to be getting a little confusing. He was named Samuel Jackson, but the grandfather of Sheldon was Samuel, who was a merchant, farmer, legislator, military officer, and also named Samuel Jackson. And this family was so prominent on the south side of the Mohawk River that their name was given to the Erie Canal community known as Port Jackson in 1835. Port Jackson was later annexed by the city of Amsterdam. The name sort of lives on. I think there are different organizations that use it. And today, though, what was Port Jackson is simply the south side of the city of Amsterdam. Sheldon Jackson's family were devout Presbyterians. And it's kind of interesting. My talk in Broad Alban was to be at a Presbyterian church. He attended Union College in Schenectady and the Princeton Theological Seminary in New Jersey. He was graduated, ordained, and married within one week in 1858. His wife was Mary Voorhees, who came from Mill Point in the town of Glen. That's the next town west of Florida in the Mohawk Valley. Reverend Jackson wanted to be a foreign missionary. But the church turned him down. You want to know why, Dave? Certainly, Bob. Because of his concerns for his poor eyesight and short stature. He was just five feet tall. Uh, I had no idea. I don't know. But it seems like, an, uh, well, anyway, in the light of what happened, it seems like it was probably the wrong decision. But see, he wanted to go to foreign lands uh, to spread the gospel of uh, Jesus Christ and so forth, but they said, no, we don't think you can, you could hack it. That seems unusual. Yeah. But because, especially in connection with what happened next, they said, well, we won't send you over to the Philippines or anywhere like that, but we'll send you to the American frontier, to the West. It was was also pretty wild or whatever. You may want to write a letter and ask them exactly what they're thinking. I don't know. Well, and he was, as indicated before, a real dynamo. Uh, He established over 100 churches and missions in the western United States, including the first Presbyterian churches in Wyoming, Montana, Utah, and Arizona. He traveled over a million miles in his career. In 1877, Sheldon Jackson went north to Alaska, and although he never permanently lived there, He was appointed superintendent of education in the territory in 1885. Jackson found the natives were starving. American whalemen had destroyed the whales and walruses the natives depended on for food and and other things, too. The introduction of firearms also decimated fur-bearing animals in the interior. Jackson was 
was friends with uh, someone who had an association with, I believe, the Orthodox Church in Russia, and although he was an American official. And Jackson, with this uh, gentleman's blessing, visited Siberia, which if you're in Alaska isn't that far away. It's across the Bering Strait. And Jackson found that the indigenous people in Siberia were relying on domesticated reindeer for food. Jackson raised funds to introduce reindeer herds in Alaska. The U.S. government got on board. They sent uh, Jackson to Lapland in Norway in 1898, where he bought over 500 reindeer and secured a colony of Laplanders to look after the animals until Alaskan natives could be trained in how to raise reindeer. So that, you know, I would say is a, you know, a plus for Sheldon Jackson, uh, what he did for the uh, natives of Alaska in introducing uh, reindeer to them, which I believe they have continued to raise to this day. Sheldon Jackson also started collecting native artifacts uh, from the native, from um, the natives, obviously, and his collection was the basis for the Sheldon Jackson Museum in Sitka. Alaska, which he helped create in 1888. Rosemary Carlton, um, I believe an academic, in a 2006 article, however, called into question what she called Jackson's duplicitous collection of traditional artifacts from Native peoples he had worked hard to change. Let me expand on that if I could. Uh, you know, I'm not sure who's right in this case, but Ms. Carlton's argument is that this was, you know, kind of, I don't know, double dealing on Jackson's part to say to the natives, oh, let me have this mask or let me have this, uh, these drawings and so forth. And he was saving them at the same time that he's changing what they're doing so that uh, their traditional uh, artifacts will no longer be uh, of import in, in Alaska. Toward the end of his life, Jackson moved back to the lower 48 and lived in Washington, D.C., but he continued to serve with the Alaskan Division of the U.S. Bureau of Education. His wife died in 1908. Jackson died the next year, and again he was buried um, in his, near his birthplace, uh, the Chuctanunda Cemetery in uh, the hamlet of Minaville, south of Amsterdam. In 1955, School teacher Florence Collins and her class of fifth graders from Amsterdam's Roman Avenue School produced two programs on the native peoples of Alaska and Sheldon Jackson that aired live on WRGB television. As one of her students that year, I wore a parka and carried a small harpoon on TV. So that's my story about Sheldon Jackson and Alaska. Sheldon Jackson, well-known in Alaska, you might want to say, Dave, of all places. Of all, I'll say it, Bob, of all places. That was a rather complicated story. Well, well isn't it, though? Yeah, it was. <clears throat> well, and, you know, and it had, when I first was writing about this, you know, it was, everything was rah-rah Sheldon Jackson. But as I started looking into the modern scholarship, uh, there's quite a bit of criticism of him out there. In fact, and I've never really looked into this specifically, but there used to be a Sheldon Jackson College, and they changed the name. 
Um, and I don't know if that was because he'd fallen out of favor or just one of those bureaucratic things, because I believe it's a part of the state of Alaska. So maybe they had to you know, name it something having to do with the state of Alaska. So how many years now, Bob, has the United States been rewriting history, you know, officially rewriting the last 30 or so? Well, I think, yes, or we probably have always been rewriting history. Uh, another detour, I just heard a, a radio interview with our uh, good friend Joe Donahue of these guys, I can't think of their name, I think they're from Princeton, where Sheldon Jackson went to school, who have written a book of recent history. They start with 1974 and they go up to the present day. You know, it's, it's... 1974 history, Bob, that would be the formation of gas lines. It was, and also the resignation of Richard Nixon. Absolutely. And uh, we And going on from there. So that was one of the, the lead-off story I was going to give. Obviously, I'm probably not on this podcast going to get through all the uh, stories that I was going to tell to the good folks in uh, Broad Alban. Let me take a moment uh, to mention our GoFundMe campaign, gofundme.com forward slash 2019 The Historians. The uh, 2019 campaign is underway. We're off to a very good start. Uh, thanks to a good contribution, a very generous contribution from Mohawk Honda in uh, Glenville, New York. We uh, did a podcast on the history of selling autos with Mr. Jeff Herodin, whose uh, grandfather started that car dealership back in 1919. But anyway, we um, I think we're something like 12% of the goal uh, of uh, $4,000 for the year. Uh, we obviously have talking about it now, but we aren't putting a full court press. But if you'd like to be among the first to contribute to this year's GoFundMe campaign, it's GoFundMe forward slash 2019, The Historians. And you can always uh, send a check made out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send to Bob Cudmore, care of 125 Horseman Drive in Scotia, New York, 12302. Back to the history talk. Uh, this is uh, a history column that ran this month of January uh, titled Pearl Harbor Memories, the Most Popular Story. There's an online hook to this story in that since 2004, Professor Frank Yunker has archived my local history stories on his website and database, mohawkvalleyweb.com. Frank Yunker teaches computer science and economics at Fulton Montgomery Community College. Recently, uh, Frank Yunker posted a chart showing which of my stories received the most clicks from Internet users during 2018. With close to 1,000 hits in 2018, the most popular story by far was one written in 2016, to mark the 75th anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. That attack catapulted the United States into World War II. Life magazine published a photo spread in its December 1, 1941 edition covering a simulated enemy air attack at a small airfield in Fort Plain in the Mohawk Valley. The real attack on major forces in Hawaii came six days later. According to Robert Going's book, Where Do We Find Such Men?, 
The first Amsterdam casualty of World War II was William E. Hassenfuss, Jr., from the family of nine children on Northampton Road. Hassenfuss had enlisted in the Army in 1939. He was stationed at Hickam Airfield in Hawaii, which is where he died. Japanese airplanes shot up the B-24 bomber that Hassenfuss and the rest of his ground crew were working on. Work began on what would become the cruiser USS Amsterdam in 1943. William Hassenfuss Jr.'s mother, Frieda Hassenfuss, christened the Amsterdam on April 25, 1944, at Newport News, Virginia. I was thinking of William when I smashed that bottle, Mrs. Hassenfuss told reporters as the vessel slid into the James River. The Amsterdam was part of the American fleet in Tokyo Bay for Japanese surrender ceremonies in 1945. Then the Amsterdam sailed back to America after picking up battle-weary and wounded sea bees in Okinawa. James Hogg from Amsterdam was serving on a Navy ship somewhere in the Pacific when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. As his niece Karen Terhar told the story, in the months after Pearl Harbor, many ships in the area were ordered to maintain radio silence. The families of all the crew members did not know if their fathers, sons, or brothers were dead or alive. Hogg's parents were Frank and Mildred Hogg. They lived on Grant Avenue in Amsterdam, as did Karen Terhar's mother, Shirley Hogg. Terhar wrote, quote, The following April, about four months after Pearl Harbor, Mom was sitting on the front porch when she heard the postman's voice. She looked up and saw him running down the sidewalk. He was waving a letter and yelling, Jimmy's alive! Jimmy's alive! James Hogg became a lieutenant commander in the Navy and married a woman from Australia. He later lived in California, and he died several years ago. The second most popular history story with Mohawk Valley web users in 2018, my focus on history stories, with over 600 hits, was a 2005 look at the former Noteworthy Indian Museum in Amsterdam, and that museum no longer exists. Third was a tale about Amsterdam native Kirk Douglas, perennial topic in Amsterdam history, if you will. Uh, Kirk Douglas became a famous Hollywood movie star and producer. Fourth was the history of the Adirondack Power and Light Building in the town of Florida, which was the subject of an illustrated booklet by Amsterdam native Dave Northrup in 2017. In fifth position was an account of Fitzgerald's, an Amsterdam soda bottling company. A look at the career of Amsterdam educator and drama coach Bert DeRose was in sixth place. In seventh was a 2018 piece on a Polish-American family in Amsterdam named Sikora. Eighth place was held by the story of horse-drawn nighttime lunch wagons. They seem to specialize, Dave, in 
Western egg sandwiches. Sounds good. Yeah, it is good. And that gave off a distinctive odor in the downtown Amsterdam, which was probably better than a lot of the odors that came in the days of uh, horse-drawn things. Probably cooked in, in uh, uh, what do they call that stuff? Grease? Yeah, well, grease. <laughs> yeah, grease. <laughs> or butter or something. Like yeah, lard. Lard. Yeah, lard. lard, lard. Yes. Well, the nighttime lunch wagons in downtown Amsterdam, and these were popular over 100 years ago. And just to add one more thought on them, uh, they went out of business in the 20s when the uh, automobile became more prevalent. You know, there's no room for horses with this, um, all the cars going around. Ninth among the stories, uh, focus on history stories, according to the people who accessed uh, MohawkValleyWeb.com. Ninth was an account of a double murder at Phillips Park in Pattersonville. And number 10 was the story of the Glove City's Colonials football team up in Fulton County. Now, uh, in this online uh, version of, of a Bob Cutmore history talk, I was probably planning to do one, two, Maybe three more stories uh, for the for the folks, but I see we're down to just uh, three minutes left. So I'm going to give kind of the new part of the story about McClumphas at Market and Main. Uh, this was a focus on history story from uh, January 12th, 2019. And we've already done the story behind the story about it here on the website. This is a store operated by the McClumpha family. John McClumpha Jr. bought a uh, the grocery store he'd been working at the corner of Market and Main, downtown Amsterdam, in 1857, after first serving as a clerk there. And remarkably, this uh, grocery store existed for 100 years. It was patronized by some of the wealthier families of uh, Amsterdam, what they used to call the carriage trade. One of the McClumphas, who served behind the counter uh, during the run of the store, was, uh, I believe his name was Charles McClumpha, who was a retired college professor. He had gone from Amsterdam to Princeton and uh, became an English professor. He headed the English department uh, at um, the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, and Charles McClumpha came back and ran the store in Amsterdam. Uh, in 1957, uh, Hugh Donlin, who wrote a lot about Amsterdam history for the recorder and uh, a book that came out in the year uh, 1980, uh, said that at the end, there were several well-known delivery men for McClumphas. And the one that I thought was most interesting was a guy called Whistling Pete, who was Pete Marticello, the father of Frank Marticello. Amsterdam's first Italian-American mayor, who was elected the year McClumphus closed in 1957. But I've heard from several people uh, about this. Uh, Jerry Scrocky, the great Amsterdam photographer, says the McClumpha home was at 32 Grove Street, which became a convent, then the Park Hill adult home, and now I think they're trying to get some other use for it. My old childhood friend Tom Chrisman said that his uncle... Uh, his family, or, or his aunt's family, was related to the McClumphas. And I have a, a nice 
comment too long to put in here at this time from Dr. George Tralka, who writes me a lot of stuff. He grew up in the 30s and 40s in Amsterdam, and he worked as a clerk at uh, McClumpha's, uh, I think in the early 1940s, and he recalled uh, kind of sneaking a lot of candy from the from the candy counter, but it seemed that Mr. McClumpha didn't didn't bother him for that. Just kind of expected that his uh, young assistants would would you see that as sort of a perk of their job. Well, I see we're just about out of time. Uh, you've been listening to the Historians Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. And we've been uh, telling you some stories as as if I was delivering a talk at your historical society or club. You can reach me about that at bobcudmore at yahoo.com. This has been the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.